If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet PlushCare, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast, based on the Morning Report series from Elsevier. This podcast has been adapted for audio in collaboration with series editor, Dr. Raj Dasgupta, as well as the volume editor for each book. Each episode features an in-depth case dissection format and aims to deliver practical, concise, and easy to digest information. And now, here's today's episode. Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast. My name is Nisa Fraser, and I am a third-year pediatric resident at LAC USC Medical Center, and I'm excited to go through a case with you guys today. Today, we will be going through case 11, which is on page 73 of your book, Pediatric Morning Report, Beyond the Pearls. This case is about a four-year-old male with abdominal pain, written by Mark Sims and Randall Chan. So here we have a four-year-old male who presents to the emergency department with three weeks of abdominal pain low back pain, and increased fatigue. So when we're approaching this case, what are the most common causes of abdominal pain in a child? Causes of abdominal pain can vary by anatomic location. Although some of these causes are rare, they must be differentiated from more common and benign causes of abdominal pain, such as constipation and acute gastroenteritis. The absence of diarrhea should always prompt the provider to carefully reassess a child with presumed acute gastroenteritis because vomiting without diarrhea may be an early indicator of another insidious cause for the abdominal pain. Additionally, the presence of bilious vomiting suggests obstruction past the level of ligament of trites and ampulla vater. Atypical causes of abdominal pain should be considered when the cause of acute abdominal pain is unclear. Ovarian and testicular torsion may present with atypical pain. Genital and pelvic examination is essential. Streptococcal pharyngitis and lower lobe pneumonia are also notorious mimickers of acute appendicitis. Now back to the case. So an examination of the child reveals an anxious but cooperative child, ill-appearing in mild distress. He has abdominal distension with visible venous pattern over the skin. A firm, non-tender mass, presumed to be the liver, is palpated in the right upper quadrant with a span of 15 centimeters, No splenomegaly is appreciated. What is your differential diagnosis for an abdominal pain in a young child? This should include anatomic abnormalities as well as malignant and benign neoplasia. Infectious causes include appendicular abscesses and mononucleosis causing splenomegaly. Anatomic causes include hernia, intussusception, bladder neck obstruction, and kidney enlargement from either hydronephrosis or congenital abnormality. Malignant abdominal neoplasia Classically, is either a Wilms tumor or neuroblastoma, but may also include intestinal lymphoma, more common in older children, though, and soft tissue malignancies such as rhabdomyosarcoma. Benign neoplasia includes focal nodular hyperplasia of the liver, 
colidocal cysts, and ovarian cysts. Sometimes it helps to come up with your differential diagnosis based on where the abdominal pain is located on the abdomen. More epigastric located pain makes you think of more gastritis, esophagitis, peptic ulcer disease, pancreatitis, and volvulus. When it's more periumbilical, of course, you're going to be thinking of early appendicitis, maybe constipation. When it's right upper quadrant, hepatitis, biliary tract disease, like cholecystitis. Right lower quadrant pain may point you towards late appendicitis, mesenteric lymphadenitis, or ovarian torsion. And then, of course, with isolated left lower quadrant pain, always rule out ovarian torsion. Here is a basic science pearl. There are multiple genetic syndromes that include Wilms tumor. Wager syndrome presents with aniridia, genitourinary abnormalities, and growth retardation. Beckwith-Wiedemann syndrome presents with hemihypertrophy and organomegaly, notably of the tongue. Finally, Denny's draft syndrome is characterized by the presence of mesangial sclerosis, which progresses to renal failure. Children with these syndromes should be screened for Wilms tumor with an annual ultrasound in conjunction with the genetic specialist. Now let's get back to the case. Ultrasound imaging reveals a mass. Follow-up CT performed for staging and surgical planning confirms the large, heterogeneous necrotic mass arising from the right adrenal gland. Diffuse osseous metastases are seen, with compression factors noted in the T9, L1, and L3 vertebrae. Regional lymph node metastases are also seen. So let's discuss what further tests we may need to help elucidate the diagnosis. These tumors may produce catecholamines, and their metabolic byproducts will accumulate in the urine. Norepinephrine and epinephrine metabolize to normedinephrine and metanephrine, respectively. Both are then metabolized to vanomedulic acid, which may be detected in the urine. Dopamine is predominantly metabolized to homovanillic acid, which may be similarly measured in urine. Here is another basic science clinical pearl. Urine catecholamine metabolites, vanomedulic acid and homovanillic acid, are measured by quantitative high-performance liquid chromatography in a young child and have a sensitivity of 84.2% and specificity of 99.9% for neuroblastoma. Despite the high specificity, the positive predictive value is only 21.1% when applied to a general population due to the rarity of the tumor. Thus, the test should only be used when a patient is actually suspected to have neuroblastoma. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Now, let's get back to the case. Laboratory analysis shows elevated concentrations of urine, homovanillic acid, and vanillic mandelic acid. Biopsy of the tumor confirms the diagnosis of neuroblastoma, poorly differentiated. 
So let's discuss neuroblastoma. It is the most common cancer in the first year of life and arises from the sympathoadrenal progenitor cells migrating from the neural crest. The tumors have a spectrum of histologic features from highly undifferentiated to almost resembling nervous tissue. Tumors with an undifferentiated histology tend to be more aggressive and more difficult to treat successfully. So what do we do next? The next step is staging or determining the risk of relapse and death, which allows for planning appropriate treatment and determining prognosis. Neuroblastoma risk classification is determined by localized versus metastatic presentation, age of diagnosis, and histologic and genetic features. Advanced stage, older age, MYCN gene amplification, hyperploidy, higher serum lactate dehydrogenase, and ferritin levels, and poor tumor differentiation are all associated with a risk of relapse. Patients with a combination of features indicating a higher risk of relapse will require more intensive therapy. MIBG scanning is a unique imaging modality for staging and assessing the response to treatment in those with neuroblastoma. MIBG is a radioactive iodine compound bound to an aryl guanidine that is structurally similar to norepinephrine. It is taken up by the neuroblastoma cells and other cells of the neuroendocrine origin. It is used as the predominant modality for assessing metastatic disease in these patients, although CT scanning may still be necessary because 10% of tumors do not take up MIBG. The most important somatic gene mutation is amplification of the MYCN gene, which infers a significantly worse prognosis. Essentially, all tumors that are MYCN amplified are considered to be high-risk tumors. Neonates may present with metastatic disease restricted to the skin, liver, and bone marrow. These patients have an excellent prognosis and often spontaneously go into remission without therapy. So let's discuss the ways that neuroblastoma can present. Neuroblastoma can arise anywhere along the parasympathetic axis, given its origin from a neural crest cell. If the tumor presents in the paravertebral chain ganglion, it can invade the intervertebral foramen. The resulting mass may appear to be dumbbell-shaped with the part of the tumor in the vertebrae and part adjacent to the foramen. The spinal cord compression can result in a number of different focal neurologic deficits depending on location. Cervical and thoracic neuroblastoma may present with isolated cervical lymphadenopathy and or a mediastinal mass, respectively. Nerve compression from a cervical tumor may result in Horner syndrome. Venous compression from a mediastinal mass may result in a superior vena cava syndrome with swelling and plethora in the face and upper chest. A tumor arising in the adrenal gland is more likely to be discovered on physical examination as a large palpable mass. Such tumors may cause pain, irritability, and bowel and bladder symptoms due to direct compression. Pelvic neuroblastoma may arise from the organ of Zucker candle. Distant metastasis can present with bone marrow infiltration leading to pancytopenia as well as bone pain. Orbital involvement can present with proptosis and periorbital hemorrhage, causing a so-called raccoon eyes presentation. Meningeal spread can lead to increased intracranial pressure. Here's the clinical pearl. The most common cause of Horner syndrome in a child, in addition to an unknown cause, is neuroblastoma. Horner syndrome in a young child is neuroblastoma unless otherwise proven. So what presentations of neuroblastoma are acutely an emergency? If a mass is within the anterior mediastinum, rapid growth can result in an airway compromise. 
The child will present with a widened median's dynum on chest radiograph and an upper airway strider. Also, if a mass extensively invades the parasympathetic chain ganglion, it can cause acute spinal cord compression. Urgent neurosurgical decompression is required to avoid permanent neurologic dysfunction. Let's discuss perineoplastic syndromes that could present with neuroblastoma. Opsoclonus myoclonus ataxia syndrome, also known as OMAS, is an uncommon perineoplastic syndrome associated with neuroblastoma. It is also known as dancing eyes, dancing feet syndrome. Opsoclonus is a rapid, multidirectional, non-rhythmic, conjugate torsional movement of the eyes without a slow phase. This differs from nystagmus, which is a rhythmic pendular motion of the eyes with an intercycadic interval or slow phase. OMAS is also characterized by monoclinic jerks and ataxia. An exhaustive search for neuroblastoma should be undertaken in all children confirmed to have OMAS. Kerner-Morrison syndrome is another neuroblastoma-associated perineoplastic syndrome, characterized by the production of vasoactive intestinal peptide, VIP. The VIP overproduction leads to secretory diarrhea, which is frequently chronic and copious enough to cause growth failure. Of note, OMAS and KMS are both associated with favorable tumor biology, with a better cancer prognosis, but OMAS often does not resolve, even with cure of the cancer. So let's get back to the case. The child is started on neoadjuvant chemotherapy with a plan for surgery following initial chemotherapy to resect the primary tumor. Future plan treatments include radiation, high-dose chemotherapy with hematopoietic stem cell rescue, and biologic and immunologic therapy. So let's wrap up this case with one more set of pearls. Prognosis in neuroblastoma is more favorable in patients who are older, of a lower stage, meaning less tumor spread, and have a more favorable histology in MYCN non-amplified disease. Risk stratification into low, intermediate, and high-risk groups take all of these factors into account. Survival is higher than 90% in those with low or intermediate risk disease, but less than 50% in those with high risk disease. Treatment for low risk disease is often surgery alone. Intermediate risk disease warrants a short course of chemotherapy. High risk disease is treated with a combination of chemotherapy, surgery, myeloablative consolidation chemotherapy with autologous hematopoietic stem cell transplantation, radiation therapy, and biologic and immunologic therapy, in that order. Biologic therapy includes the use of a 13-cis retinoic acid, which is a differentiating agent that is also used for the treatment of severe acne. When used after consolidation of chemotherapy and radiation, it reduces the risk of disease reoccurrence. One of the first uses of immunologic therapy against pediatric cancers was a monoclonal antibody targeted to the dysialoganglioside GD2 expressed on the cell surface of neuroblastoma cells in conjunction with immune growth factors and cytokines. The antibody coats the surface of the tumor cell and marks it for immune destruction. OMAS is caused by neuroblastoma but does not always resolve with cure of the cancer. Treatments that have been used for OMAS include ATCH, glucocorticoids, cyclophosphamide at low doses, and IVIG. Neuroblastoma almost always occurs in a young child, with the median age being less than two years old, but has been described in adolescents and young adults. These tumors are often slow-growing and relatively chemotherapy-resistant. So that concludes our case for today. Again, my name is Nisa Fraser, and thank you so much for listening. See you next time. 
Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis.